this verse. What I feel like the Lord wants me to do during this weekend is to um, deal with some things concerning the nature of God. You know, you cannot really have a relationship with a person that you don't know what they're like. If you think that God is an angry God, a harsh God, it's going to affect the way you relate to Him. And, uh, you know, I want to present this in a balance. As a whole, the body of Christ has been told that God is an angry God who is out to judge them and is going to move in their life directly proportional to how they live. And so I'm sure that all of you here, unless somebody drug you here, believe that God exists and you believe that God has ability to do things that are supernatural and you probably are looking for supernatural results in your life and that's the reason you're out here on a Thursday night listening to me. This isn't your nod to God crowd. Amen. You aren't getting points for this. You're here because you're hungry or somebody who is hungry brought you here and drug you here. So, you believe that God exists, but there's a tremendous amount of confusion about how do you relate to God and it's because some people see God as an angry God. And you know, these things don't only come just through wrong thinking and wrong teaching. The Word of God shows a wrath of God. It shows God punishing people. It shows a strict, harsh God. But then on the other hand, the Word of God shows a loving and kind God. And really, it looks kind of like God is schizophrenic. Or that there was a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament and people just aren't sure which God we're dealing with at the moment. Whether He's in a good mood, an old, a New Testament mood, or an Old Testament mood. And anyway, this hinders people from receiving from God. Not that they doubt He exists, but they just aren't sure how to relate to Him. And you know, this is a, this is a big issue, and I'm not going to solve every one of those questions during this weekend, but I want to share some things with you that God showed me because I started out just like a lot of people in my relationship. Uh, I didn't know very much about God, and I was taught that God was harsh, that he was stern, that you had to fulfill everything, you had to do all of this stuff just right. And I tried, and I failed at it. And uh, I personally believe that I wouldn't be standing in front of you today if I didn't learn some other things about God that balanced that out and helped me to understand this. And so I want to share these things with you. This has made a huge difference in my life. And right here in Psalms chapter 85, there's one verse here that just kind of sums up one of the problems in relating to God in one verse. Psalms chapter 85 and in verse 10, it's, and I want you to think about this. If you aren't careful, you'll just skip over this and not get the importance of it. But it says, mercy and truth are meant together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You know, a lot of people just skip through that verse. But there, this, is a, this is a paradox. Because mercy, let me just define that real quickly. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. 
Grace is getting all of the good things of God that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. When they have mercy on you, that means that you have done something wrong and yet they aren't going to give you what you deserve. And so to have mercy and truth meet together, these things are actually opposite. You know, if we just went by truth, if we only went by what you have done and what you deserve to receive in response to that, did you know that there isn't a single one of us that would receive mercy? Now, I could probably spend all night long proving that because there's so many people today that, you know, we used to have as a society a standard of right and wrong and that this was good and that this was bad. We live in a society now to where those lines are just about gone and basically everybody picks and chooses and there's people today living in out and out rebellion and sin towards God and they just think that they're fine doing that. And so we don't have uh, the outside reinforcement of society to uh, show us that we're wrong. And there's some people that think that the way that they're living, it's just up to them. I can pick and choose and who cares what I do. I'm a self-made man or woman. I could spend the rest of the night and show you from Scripture that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is not a single person who is righteous before God. There is not a single person in here who has not sinned. And again, every person knew this at one time intuitively. I'm not going to take time to turn over and read these verses, but for your own sake, you ought to read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And in verse 16, he had just made this huge statement that it's the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. That's my summary of it. That's actually a quotation from Romans chapter 2, verse um, 4 or 11, I forget. Just had a brain cloud. But anyway, the goodness of God leads man to repentance. But in Romans 1.16, he says it's the gospel that is the power of God. And that's talking about the nearly too good to be true news. Once you start talking about the good news and the mercy of God, immediately this question comes up, well, don't you have to tell people that they're a sinner? And then verses 18 through 20, Romans 1, 18 through 20 says, no, you don't have to tell people that they're a sinner because all of us have an intuitive knowledge on the inside that we have sinned. And it says in verse 18, have you got that up there? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Notice it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Not some of it, all of it. All of it. And then in verse 19 it says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them... For God has shown it unto them. In other words, this isn't something that you have to be told. Every one of us was born with a conscience and an intuitive knowledge of right and wrong. And in verse 20, it says, Even His eternal power for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even His eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. There is not a single person that at one time didn't know that they had sinned and come short of the glory of God. There isn't a single person that has ever walked on this earth that didn't know that there is only one God and you are not Him and that you have come short of His glory. There is not a single person who has ever lived in homosexuality that didn't know it was wrong. There is not a single person who has ever lied who didn't know that it was wrong. 
There is not a single person who has ever lusted or stolen or anything else that you could name that didn't know it was wrong. But the scripture does reveal in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that you can sear your conscience with a hot iron. That means that you can deaden it to the things of God. And through repeated offenses, you can get to where your conscience and this intuitive knowledge of right and wrong becomes less and less and less to the point that uh, in Romans chapter 1, if you were to go on and read in that very chapter, one of the final stages in deadening yourself and searing your conscience is homosexuality. It isn't clear in Romans chapter 1, but if, if you haven't crossed the line by the time you get into homosexuality, you're right up against that line. You have to deaden yourself and reject and go against this intuitive knowledge of right and wrong. And that's one of the very last stages before a person just reaches a place to where there's no conviction of God in their life. So my point is, if I could spend the rest of the night, I could take many, many scriptures and show you that every one of us, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And people get into these mind games and they try and make morality relative to where they think that, oh, I'm living okay. But the truth is, in your heart, you know that every one of us have come short of what God intended us to be. Every person knew that at one time, and you still know it unless you have hurt and deadened your conscience. That's just what the Scripture teaches, and if I had more time, I could prove that to every single person. So, the truth is that all of us have come short of the glory of God. We don't deserve anything. You know, I have people come up to me all the time and say, this isn't fair, I deserve better than this. Boy, you, are, you don't want what you deserve. <laughs> you know, there's a scripture. It's either 1st or 2nd Corinthians chapter 10. I forget the reference, but it says, but they comparing themselves among themselves and measuring themselves by themselves are not wise. And you know, this happens so much today. This is what's happening in our society. Most people do not use the Bible as their standard. Very few people and even very few Christians let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. I just read another Barna survey recently and he was asking people how they come up with their worldview and their standard of morality. And did you know that the vast majority of people, even the vast majority of Christians said that they just base it on how they feel based on their own intuitive knowledge, based on uh, you know how society is and things like this. In other words, they aren't using the Word of God as a standard in their life. They are just inventing these things on their own. And that's wrong. And so there's a lot of people today that just don't have a proper standard of right and wrong. But according to the scripture, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when we say it isn't fair, you don't want fair. You don't want what you deserve. God has never had anybody qualified working for him yet. God hasn't, God doesn't deserve, there, let me put it this way, none of us deserve the blessing of God. And I know that some of you are immediately saying, now wait a minute, you don't know about me. That's because you are comparing yourself with somebody else. And compared to somebody else, you look good. 
But if you were to put yourself up next to Jesus, which the Bible says all of sin comes short of the glory of God, that's Jesus. Jesus is the standard. If you were to look at what God made all of us to be, what He created man to be, you know, we have lived so long in a fallen world and we are among people who are so fallen and have so many flaws that we just look around and we think that this is normal. God created Adam and Eve perfect. He created them perfect. He created them holy and pure. And most of us, that is so far removed from our reference point that we don't even realize how far we've fallen. I believe in evolution. I really do. I just don't believe we evolved from slime into this complex person. I believe we evolved from perfect down to this fallen being that has these terrible things on the inside of us. I believe that we... You know, the second law of thermodynamics says that things go from a state of order to a state of disorder. You could take a flower arrangement and put it here, and if nobody touched it in a hundred years, that thing would fall apart. It would, it, would, it would get disorderly. You couldn't take a whole group of flowers and lay them here, and in a hundred years they would become orderly and get into a flower arrangement. Everything in... in uh, Our world goes from a state of order to a state of disorder, and yet evolution preaches that you go from a state of disorder to a state of ultimate complex and order. It's completely opposite any observable thing that you can find. But when it comes to human nature, we went from perfection, from holy, from pure, from innocent to depraved. And I know that that's offensive to some people because, again, today people have evolved and they just see themselves as better than that. Compared to the standard, the glory of God, every one of us is far, far, far removed from what God intended us to be. And if you don't have that opinion, then your opinion is wrong. (laughs) And some of you think, well, in Christ, I'm, well, in Christ, we are awesome. I'm talking about in our natural self. In Christ, we are a totally brand new person, but you still have a physical body and your physical body is not getting better in case you've noticed or not noticed. It goes from a state of order to a state of disorder. You get that Dunlop disease where your belly's Dunlopped over your belt buckle, amen. Chest or drawers disease, where your chest is done drop down into your drawers. <laughs> I mean, you just, in case you haven't noticed, we are in the process of decay and in your physical body and in your soulish mind. You can affect them to some degree, but you aren't perfect, is the point I'm trying to make. And so, this verse in Psalms chapter 85, verse 10, where it says, Mercy and truth have meant each other. How can something like that happen? Because they're opposite. The truth would keep mercy from coming towards us. If we got what we deserve, there's not a single person on the face of the earth that would be born again. And again, you know, I am glad that God called me to preach the grace of God because I've lived a better life than most people. And those people who think that I'm just preaching this grace because that allows us to go live in sin, they can't use that against me. I've lived a holier life than most of you have ever thought about. 
I just turned 60 last month, or I guess now it's been a little over a month ago. And you know what? I've never said a word of profanity in my 60 years. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never tasted coffee. Some of you are thinking, coffee? You got scripture to stand on for drinking coffee. Mark chapter 16, verse 18 says, You can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you. I'm just saying, I've lived a separated life. I've lived a holy life. But who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? I've sinned and come short of the glory of God. I'm not perfect. And see, there's some people who take offense when you start talking like this and they think, Well, you don't know how good I am. We've all sinned, and you need to come to this. Did you know that the Founding Fathers, I just made some uh, programs with David Barton on our television, and they're going to be airing at the end of this month. If you don't watch our program, you ought to at least watch those. It's powerful. And anyway, he made this point so clear that the Founding Fathers of this nation believed that man left to himself was ungodly, fallen, and depraved. And that they needed checks and balances. And that's the reason they went away from a monarchy or a dictator. They didn't want to give one person with a fallen human nature that kind of power. So they invested it in the greatest number of people. And even in the government, they had three branches that were a check and balance on each other. And in their writings, it was all based on scripture that man could not be trusted on his own. And so you need these checks and balances. And this was understood among them. We've got people today that think, oh, everybody's fine and that everybody's all right. You need to recognize that there is a part of you that is depraved, that is fallen, that is going to be... When somebody says something wrong to you, you're going to want to punch their lights out, which is the ungodly response. You are going to want to be selfish and put yourself ahead of other people. You are going to only think about yourself instead of thinking about others. You need to recognize that there's a part of you that's like that and that it doesn't deserve the goodness of God. And if you don't think that, if you think that you really merit the favor of God, if you think that God is so privileged to have you on His team, (laughs) that man, God got somebody awesome when He got you, then that's one of your big problems right there is you are trusting in yourself and you are enamored with yourself. If you are all wrapped up in yourself, you're going to make a very small package. You need to recognize that there is somebody more important than you. And I tell you, these things need to be said because we live in a society again that has gotten away from these godly principles and they have changed the rules and there's people out there having parades and bragging about their sexual perversion. I'm not against them. I don't hate a person who's a homosexual, but I guarantee I don't share their view. It's not right, and you shouldn't be promoting it and bragging about it and holding parades. Something's wrong with you. But we've got people today that have changed all the rules and so they're bragging and promoting things as if there's nothing wrong. I mean, really, there's a segment of society today that really there's nothing wrong. Nothing is wrong. Once homosexuality quits being wrong, well then what's to keep you from going into bestiality? 
What's to keep you from going into other things? I mean, where is there a right and a wrong? And there's a segment of society that nothing is right and wrong and that they deserve everything. You need to come to the end of yourself. You need to come to recognize that you do not deserve the goodness of God. And because of that truth, then there should be no mercy for you. Mercy and truth are mutually exclusive except for Jesus. In Jesus, mercy and truth have met together. Now, God can be merciful to you and be totally just in doing it. Now, at first, that doesn't sound right. It sounds like that God just chose to overlook your sin. That God just chose to turn the other way. That God, since He's God, can just decide to change the rules. No, God is just. God is holy. God cannot lie. When God told Adam and Eve, you eat of this tree and you're going to die in Genesis chapter 2. Did you know he bound himself by his word and because God is faithful and just and he cannot lie, that put us in a bad shape. Because when we ate of the tree, then God to be just and to be holy had to allow death to come upon us. There's a scripture in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 and it talks about Jesus and says that He is the brightness of His image, I mean of His glory and the express image of His person and He upholds all things by the word of His power. That is saying that God holds this entire world, all things, together by the word of His power, or some of the translations put it, the integrity of His word. If God was to ever violate one of His promises, then the world would self-destruct. It's the integrity of God's word that created everything. He spoke the worlds into existence. He said, let there be light, and instantly there was light. Four days before there was a sun for the light to come from. God said, let us make man. God said and created everything. Words spoke everything physical that you and I can see into existence. And according to Hebrews 1, 3, the Word upholds everything. If God was to ever lie, which it says in Hebrews chapter 6, it's impossible for God to lie. But if God ever broke His promise, if God ever failed to keep one of His promises, the world would self-destruct. Because everything is held together by that word. So when God said, you eat of this, you die. The soul that sins, it shall die. That created a problem. Because we've all sinned. And now for God to be just and holy, we have to die. Physically and spiritually. So how could there ever be mercy? How could mercy? Because God is truth. And because He's just and because He's holy, how could He ever show mercy? You know, that is a major problem that, again, a lot of people haven't thought through the things that I'm saying right here. But if you haven't sat down and thought this through, then all it means is that you're going to come to an incomplete conclusion and there's going to be confusion in this area. You need to consider this stuff. How can a holy God forgive us when truth... Justice would demand that we die. And again, a lot of people think, well, now this is just being a little bit... You're you're too technical. 
This is truth. This is the way that God is. God dots every T. He crosses, or did I say that? He crosses every T and dots every I. God doesn't leave any detail undone. It's not like, you know, when Adam and Eve sinned, he just says, whoops, King's X, time's out. I had my fingers crossed. Let's do this over. I don't want the results. Let's change. No, God can't change. He cannot change. He cannot lie. He is just. He's holy. He said these things. And we violated His laws. And by all forms of justice, we ought to be annihilated. How can mercy ever exist as long as God is just and holy? And then look at the second part of that verse. It says, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Did you know that all have sinned? and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Romans chapter 3, I believe it's about verse 19, says that there are verse, anyway, right around there, says that there is none righteous. No, not one. It says, and I believe Isaiah chapter 64, some, some verse in that chapter says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And if you were to study that out, it's talking about a menstrual cloth. All of your righteousness. This isn't talking about your sins, your failures. This isn't talking about your bad things. This is talking about you at your very best are like a menstrual cloth, a dirty rag. And again, this is offensive to the average person because they say, Oh, you don't know how good I am. Compared to me, you might be good. But compared to what God created us to be, the purity, the holiness that God put inside of man, we have all, all of our righteousness is like a filthy rag. You know, we have become so, I believe that we are so deadened. This book that I was advertising tonight about hardness of heart would illustrate this and go into a lot more detail on it. But we have grown up in the midst of sin and of hatred and bitterness, and lying, and selfishness. And we've been so conditioned towards it that many of us don't even think about it. But God didn't make us to be this way. I've got a teaching out there entitled Self-Centeredness, the Root of All Grief. If you don't have that, you ought to get it. It would change your life. It would totally, totally, totally change your life. But we have grown up so self-centered, so focused on self, that we just think that this is normal. Some people grow up in homes where there's so much strife, there's so much anger, there's bickering and there's fighting. And then we see it on television. Nearly every sitcom has these terrible jabs that are spoken back and forth and there's hatred in movies and we have become so conditioned that we think this is normal. And so because of this, we think I'm really a good person. Good person compared to what? compared to some movie characters, compared to some sitcom, compared to the way that you were brought up, but compared to what God intended us to be, we, we are of all sin come short of the glory of God. We are very unrighteous. And therefore, there is no peace to the wicked, is what the Lord said. The Lord said in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, that the Lord would keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him. Because he trusts in him. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says that to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. 
carnal-mindedness is just talking. It doesn't have to be terrible sin. It doesn't have to be perversion, total rebellion towards God. Carnal just means natural. Just think in the natural realm. Just be a natural person. Just be a good, nice, natural, carnal person. And it's death. But to be spiritually minded, John chapter 6 verse 63 says, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are alive. To be spiritually minded is to be word minded. If we were to think like God, it produces life and peace. But there's a problem here. We are all carnal. We are all much less and most of us don't even know it. And so how could righteousness and peace coexist? Because peace only comes to those who have lived right who have done these things, and all of us have come short. All of us. There is none of us that are righteous. So what I'm trying to do through this verse is to show you that mercy and truth are in opposite directions. How could they ever meet together? Righteousness and peace exclude each other because none of us are righteous. So therefore, how could we ever have peace with God? These are opposing things. And you will hear people either emphasize the holiness and the righteousness of God and talk about how that God is so strict and without exception, those people will be people that do not have peace, that do not have mercy. They are judgmental. They're harsh. We just saw an example of this, a person who went out and killed a man who committed abortions, which abortions are bad, but you don't kill the person who's doing it. That's an example of an extreme, but that's a person who did not understand mercy and truth dwelling together. They become legalistic and condemning. Or you'll have people that go the other direction that just sit there and throw off all restraint and there is no such thing as morality. And and instead of living up to a standard, what they do is just lower the bar so far that you could fall across it. It doesn't take any effort that it vir- virtually you don't have to do anything because everything, it's just all is dependent on stuff. And, and if worse comes to worse, well, then it's not your fault. You were raised in a dysfunctional home. So the reason you're such a jerk is because of what somebody else did. That's the way that the world is responding to things. But I'm telling you that righteousness and peace have kissed each other. They are now in harmony. How can this be? How could a holy God ever justly treat us as if we are worthy of things. And you know, I'm trying to lay a foundation and I'm going to spend the rest of this week trying to explain this. But in a nutshell, I'll say it and then I'll go into a lot more detail. But this is all through Jesus. You know, people don't fully appreciate Jesus because number one, they don't fully appreciate how desperate our situation was without Jesus. If you don't know, if you never have felt the condemnation and the wrath and the separation from God, you won't fully appreciate the freedom and the acceptance and the love of God. You know, the scripture says to those who much has been forgiven, the same love much. And even though I was listing, you know, that I haven't done a lot of the outward sins that a lot of people have done, So some people think, well then, man, you could never love much. But the difference is, 
I may not have committed some of the same acts that that you all have, but I have probably seen my own sin and unworthiness stronger than most people in this room. I can't say that for certain, but I can say that I had a supernatural revelation from God. I became a religious Pharisee, and I got to trusting in my own goodness. And I looked down my nose at other people and thought about, man, I wish that they were as holy as I was. And in the midst of that hypocrisy, God showed me my sin and showed me how unrighteous I was. And I believe that I've had a greater revelation of my unworthiness and my lack of deserving the things of God than the vast, vast majority of people. And because of it, I appreciate what Jesus did for me. If you never fully understand this problem, this, what do you call it, conundrum. That's what I was trying to think of. Thank you, Larry. If you don't understand this conundrum, you will not fully appreciate what God has done for us. If you think that God really found a jewel when He found you, and that no wonder Jesus came, is because you are so awesome. You know, just yesterday on the plane, I was reading in Ezekiel chapter 16, And over there, it was talking to the nation of Israel, and the Lord was basically trying to get across the same point. And He says, you were like a child that was born, and in the day of your birth, you weren't swaddled, you weren't cleaned up, you were cast out into the dirt, you still had blood on you, you didn't have your navel cut, you were wallowing in your own blood, and you were polluted, and you were filthy. And at that time, when we were this defiled, dirty thing, the Lord found us and took us unto Himself. And the point He was trying to make to the nation of Israel was, I didn't pick you because you deserved it. He said in other places, He says, you weren't the mightiest nation. You weren't the strongest nation. I didn't pick you because you were the greatest of anything. I picked you out of love and out of mercy. And see, if you think that, man, God is just so, so lucky, so blessed to have you on His side, then you aren't going to fully appreciate what God has done. And I'm saying a lot of things here that I'm going to have to go back and verify in more detail. But if you could just take this as kind of an outline, a sketch, then I'll go in and fill in the detail and color this in for you as we go through this week and it will really help you. But this is basically what the Old Testament law was given for. The Old Testament law was given not to set you free from sin, but rather to amplify your sin and to make it so big and so hideous that it would deprive you of any feeling that you could save yourself. It was to actually make sin come alive on the inside of you and it was to make you despair of ever changing yourself and ever being worthy in the sight of God. It was given to drive you to your knees so that you'd cry out for mercy instead of justice. And one of the greatest deceptions that the devil has ever put forth through religion is to get people to embrace the Old Testament law as, Oh God, thank you for giving us all of these rules and regulations and all of these commands so that we could come to know you. The law wasn't given to help you know God. The law was given to help you know you're a sinner to show you your failure, to knock you flat of your face so the only way you could look was up. That was the purpose of the law. And yet most people think, oh no, no, the law is such a wonderful thing. 
The law was given to kill, to condemn. I'm going to be showing you some scriptures and proving that in more detail. But see, you need to come to the end of yourself before you can find the beginning of God. And there's a lot of Christians that have not come to the end of themselves. They haven't understood that they don't deserve mercy. The truth is they deserve judgment. They haven't understood that righteousness, having to be righteous, pure and holy in the sight of God, excludes us from ever having peace. And the only way that you can ever have mercy and peace with God is through total, absolute trust and dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus purchased something from God that you could never earn, that you could never measure up to. All of us have come short of that standard. And it's only through Jesus that we can have any type of relationship with God. Now, you know, that's easy for me to say. And there's a lot of you who I'm sure are sitting there saying, well, I've accepted Jesus and so therefore I've got all of that. And then you leave here and immediately you go right back in to your old mindset. Here's a way of illustrating it. If I, if I had people come forward tonight for healing, I can guarantee you I've done this thousands and thousands of times. I've heard this over and over. But people come forward and they'll say, I just don't know why God hasn't healed me. I've been fasting and praying and studying the Word and I pay my tithes and I go to church and I'm living as holy as I can. You know what you're saying? Is why don't I have peace? Because look at my righteousness. Your righteousness is like a filthy rag. If you were to get what you deserved, you'd die on the spot. And you'd say, well, I'm doing all of these things. See, you don't understand. You are trying to have relationship with God based on your own righteousness, your own right doing. You can't do that. It is only through Jesus that you'll ever have peace or healing or joy or victory or whatever it is that you're in need of. And so there's people who sit here and say, oh yeah, I've made Jesus my Lord and so everything's fine. And then they go back into this performance mentality to where they think it's their righteousness, their self-righteousness that makes them worthy. And because they haven't sinned as much as somebody else, then they think that God owes it to them. You need to understand the opposites here. That none of us deserve anything from God. You can't come and, and demand healing because, God, I've confessed 550 times that by your stripes I am healed and now you twist God's arm and God's got to come through. Of course, that's none of you that are here. None of you would ever pray and if you don't see their prayer come to manifest, then you go to the prayer chain and get others to put more pressure on Him. Or, if that doesn't work, then you start fasting. And most people believe that fasting is something that just forces God. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to do anything until God moves. You know what that is? That's self-righteousness. Thinking that, And a lot of times it's kind of this, this mentality that we don't know why God isn't prone to give us what we've been asking for. But if we start fasting right before we die, right before we you know, just waste away. I mean, we're, we're our stomach's growling. We're so weak, we can hardly lift our hand. Even an harsh, angry God, whatever's wrong with him, he'll at least have pity on me when I'm about to die. 
And you do that to make God move. Fasting doesn't affect God. It doesn't change God one iota. Fasting is for you. And that's a whole other subject. I hadn't got time to teach on that. But fasting changes your heart towards God, not God's heart towards you. But see, there's people, if I had them come forward, they would start listing what they've been done, doing and they'd get somebody else to agree and we're going to not let, we're going to grab hold of the horns of the altar and shake it until God comes out. I want you to know God came out long before you grabbed the altar, long before you started doing something. It is not up to us to motivate God and to make God do something. You are, in a sense, going back and trying to get mercy Because you deserve mercy. You don't deserve mercy. You deserve judgment. Well, I want peace because I've been doing all of these right things. If you got what you deserved, you would get judgment and not peace. You would have turmoil. You'd be miserable. And let me just put a little parenthetical phrase in here. This is why some of you are miserable. Is because you have this mindset and you're trying to earn the favor of God. You're trying to deserve it. And you're frustrated because you're living holier than you ever have and you're living better than this person over here. And you just can't understand and you're heartbroken. And what does God demand? Perfection. He demands absolute perfection. Well, I can't be perfect. Well, then you ought to trust someone who was. You ought to pray in His name. And you know what, because we live in a world that again does not base their theology on the Bible and everything is performance based oriented, like you couldn't sit here and listen to what I'm saying tonight and then go to your boss tomorrow and say, oh, I found out that, man, mercy and peace are mine just through Jesus and it doesn't matter how I live. So I, you know what, I may or may not show up for work. I may or may not work. I think I'll take a two-hour break tomorrow, and you know what? I'm just going to receive it through grace. You tell your boss that, and he'll fire you. (laughs) The world doesn't operate this way. Only God operates this way. So, because our world doesn't model grace for us, it doesn't model this kind of thing, you know what? It's easy to fall back into this. I don't think that you ever just see this, and then it's over. In my own life, I've had to grow in this and grow in it. And I'm still growing in it. I still fall back into thinking, oh God, what have I got to do to earn my way unto you and to please you? And I sometimes get to trust Him in myself instead of in the Lord. You know, not long after Jamie and I moved to this little town of Pritchett, Colorado, I had been uh, ministering to people. We saw a man raised from the dead and because of it, our church jumped from 10 up to 100 in a town of 144 people. (laughs) We started having miracles and people started coming and they were wearing me out. I didn't have time to read the Bible or to pray except for people. I mean, I got up, they'd wake me up in the middle of the night. They'd come over at all hours of the night and I had no time to do anything. And so I knew then I needed to be studying the Word. And that's true. You do need to study the Word and you do need to pray for your sake to keep your heart sensitive to God, not to make God's heart sensitive towards you. God doesn't love you more if you study the Word and pray 
And He doesn't love you less if you don't. But you will love God less if you don't study the Word and pray. And you will love God more if you study the Word and pray. And anyway, I knew that I was supposed to be doing these things and I'd been so busy I hadn't been spending time in the Word and I hadn't been praying the way I should. And so I made a commitment that I was going to fast and pray and study the Word all day long. And I made that commitment. I went to bed. And before I woke up, somebody was knocking on the door. They woke me up knocking on the door and people wanted prayer. So I prayed all day long, but I prayed for other people. I didn't do what I promised the Lord I'd do. The only time I opened the Bible all day long was to minister to other people. I had a steady stream of people come by my house. And so I I opened the Bible, but not for my study. It was to minister to other people. And at lunch, I had a man come by who I'd been trying to lead to the Lord, and he wanted to come by and take me to lunch. And I thought, man, today could be his day to get born again. And am I going to tell him, no, I'm not eating? And so I went out and ate with him because I thought I could get him born again. And I was hungry because I didn't have breakfast, so I actually ate twice as much as I normally do. And on the way to a Bible study that night, I had 45 miles to drive. I was feeling so unworthy. Like, God, I promised you that I would fast and pray and study the Word all day long. And I hadn't done any of it. And I was feeling terrible. And, you know, the devil brought scriptures back to me. The devil can quote scripture. I thought of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, I believe it's verse 5, where it says it's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not pay. (laughs) All liars will have their part in the lake of fire that burns forever. (laughs) That Satan is the father of all lies. And I just, I was feeling so terrible. And as I was getting closer to this place, I was saying, oh God, what about the people? I know I don't deserve it, but God... Don't you love the people? Just use me and speak through me just because you love the people. And I didn't feel any release. I didn't feel any confidence that God was going to use me. And so as I got closer, I was still grasping for straws. And I finally just said, Oh God, do it because of who Jesus is. And as soon as I said that, the Lord spoke to me and He said, Who did you think I was going to do it because of? And you know what? I had fallen back into thinking because I knew I should have been studying the Word and praying and doing these things. I was thinking, God, I'm going to do this and now you'll use me. The moment you do that, you have moved back into self-righteousness. You aren't standing in the righteousness of who you are in Christ. And all of your self-righteousness is like a filthy rag. It is inadequate You become righteous through putting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what He has done for you and not what you do for Him. And I was a pastor of a church when this happened. I'm saying you can fall back into this. There is no role model for this. The world is all performance based. And you have to make a deliberate effort to keep yourself in a position to where my relationship with God is not based on my goodness and my holiness, and whether I'm doing all of these things. God loves me in spite of who I am, not because of who I am. God loves me because He is lovely, not because I am love. I mean, because He is love, not because I am lovely. That's important that you keep that distinction. And you know, when you understand this, all of Satan's weapon against you 
is, he is the accuser of the brethren, is what it says in Revelation chapter 12. He can't accuse God. Satan isn't here telling you, oh, God can't do a miracle. God can heal people. You know, Pastor David down here, we played golf today, and he was telling me about that he had a person die in his church. And they saw him raised from the dead. How long was he dead? Four minutes, and he was raised from the dead. You know what? Most of you believe in those kind of things. Most of you believe things like that can happen. It's not that you doubt God can do it. What Satan is coming against, he doesn't say God can't do it. He comes and says, sure, God can do that, but he wouldn't do it for you because you haven't studied the word. You haven't prayed. You aren't holy. You had a bad thought. You've lusted. You did this. You did that. It's not that you doubt God's ability. You doubt God's willingness to use His ability on your part. And this is how Satan is stopping the body of Christ. Again, I say to those of you that are here on a Thursday night, you're a stark, raving, mad fanatic. You are not the average Christian. You believe in the supernatural power of God or you wouldn't be here. Amen? And so if somebody was to die in this service, Pastor Dave has seen people raised from the dead. Pastor Dean here has seen how many people raised from the dead? Ten people raised from the dead. I've seen three people raised from the dead. Mark, were you telling about a person? Or we had another story. Anyway, we had two stories today about people being raised from the dead. I personally know 40-something people who have been raised from the dead. There's only nine in all of the Bible. We are living in an awesome day. Most of you believe that those things can happen. And if somebody fell over dead right here tonight, and I said, well, how many of you believe that God can raise them from the dead? Most of you would be right there with me, amen. You'd be shouting and praising God. And I said, all right, we're going to pray and we're going to see them raised from the dead. Many of you would get up here close. You'd want to see it. You believe it. There would be excitement. There would be anticipation. But you know where I could lose the vast majority of you? All I'd have to do is say, all right, if you believe it, you come up here and pray for them. And all of a sudden, some of you who were so excited and anticipating so much, now it would turn to dread and fear. What happened? Did you quit believing that God can do it? You don't doubt God's ability. What you're doubting is God's willingness to do it. You know why? Because we have a performance-based relationship with God to where we feel like we only get mercy when we deserve it. We only get peace when we have lived righteously. We only get answers to prayer when you are fasting and praying and living holy and doing everything right. And it's your own trust in yourself and your own desire to be good that is causing you to doubt. Your faith is in yourself instead of in a Savior. And because of this, you may not phrase it this way, but mercy and truth haven't met each other in your life. Righteousness and peace haven't kissed each other in your life. You're still trying to get things through a performance-based relationship with God. And you've got to get out of that and come to understand that you are getting what you do not deserve. That's the reason we pray in the name of Jesus. 
You know, the Bible says you aren't supposed to take the name of God in vain. Most people think that that's using profanity and swearing. You know what taking the name of God in vain is, Oh God, heal me because I'm fasting and I'm praying and I'm studying the Word and I'm doing the best I can. And God, I'm living as holy as I can in Jesus' name. That's taking the name of Jesus in vain. When you're saying in the name of Jesus, you should be saying, Father, because of who Jesus is. I don't come before you because I deserve anything. It's not my own credit. It's not my effort. I do not deserve the least of your favor. I am praying in the name of Jesus because of who He is, because of His sacrifice, because of His atonement. That's my only claim. That's my only justification is the fact that Jesus purchased these things and I receive it as a gift in the name of Jesus. That's what you're supposed to be saying. But anytime you point to yourself and your own goodness and then tack onto the end of that prayer and say, in the name of Jesus, you have just taken the name of Jesus in vain. That's a strong statement. And that's exactly what the vast majority of the body of Christ is doing. They're pointing to themselves. And this is the reason that we aren't having boldness and confidence and we aren't seeing the results that we desire is because your own goodness is standing in the way. You are trusting in your goodness instead of in the goodness of a Savior. We haven't fully understood this. And I'm telling you, our own self-righteousness is stopping the power of God. The only sin that God cannot flow through is the sin of self-righteousness. You know what? Any sin that you've ever committed cannot stop the power of God. God is greater than your sin. Now that's a major statement and I know that that is completely contrary to religion today. Religion will say the slightest little sin stops the power of God. God won't use a dirty vessel. I want you to know God hadn't got any other kind of vessel to use. Oh no, if you've got a sin, you've got to get all sin confessed. What happens if you forget one? And sin is not only the laws that you break, but the Bible says to him that knows to do good and does it not to him it is sin. So sin is what you're supposed to be doing that you're failing to do. So every one of us, if you use that as a definition or failing, we should be doing more. We should love our wife more. You should reverence your husband more. You should think of other people more. You should be studying more. You should pray more. You should... All of us are falling short. If you use a Bible definition, all of us are sinning coming short of the glory of God. The moment you believe that you've got to do everything right before God will move in your life, that is the one thing that stops God from moving, is the fact that your faith is in yourself. And brothers and sisters, this is where the vast majority of the body of Christ is because it's been taught this incorrectly by the church to put our faith in ourself. If you were to come forward tonight, all I'd have to do is have a word of knowledge and just show you something that you've done wrong and most of you would fold like a $2 suitcase. Oh, I knew. I knew there was something wrong. I, now I know why God won't move in my life. Because I don't deserve it. Nobody deserves it. You know, if a person came forward for salvation tonight, and if I had a word of knowledge, and I said, God shows me you're living in adultery. person you're living with, you aren't even married to. You're shacking up with them. You're a sinner. 
if they heard the gospel correctly, that wouldn't keep them from getting saved. It would drive them towards salvation. They would say, that's the reason I need Jesus to forgive me. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they would go ahead and receive salvation. Isn't that true? But let a Christian come forward. And all I got to do is have a word of knowledge and say, you didn't read your daily Bible readings today. You had a wrong thought 30 years ago. Just pinpoint the slightest little thing in the average Christian. Oh, now I know why God's not going to move in my life. Consider the, the unjustness of that. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, abounding therein with thanksgiving as you have been taught. That means the same way that you receive salvation is the same way you receive healing or deliverance or joy or peace or anything else. How did you get saved? Was it because you had been fasting and praying and studying the Word? Was it because you had been living holy and you came forward and said, God, I've lived so holy now. Save me. No, you came and humbled yourself and received it as a gift. And that's how you got born again. But then, when it comes to healing, you don't come with the same attitude. Oh God, have mercy on me. I receive it as a gift. In the name of Jesus, I receive it. No, it's, oh God, I've been fasting and praying and I'm living holy and now you move in my life because I deserve it. That's not walking by the same rule. That's the reason that it was so easy for you to get saved and so hard for you to be healed. Technically speaking, it is much easier to be healed than it is to be saved. The healing of your body is nothing. You know, Jesus said this in Mark chapter 2. He was teaching, and this is where they let the man down through the roof. They took the tiles off and they let the man down through the roof. And Jesus looked at him and he says, Son, your sins be forgiven you. And of course, all the religious Pharisees says, Who's this man that forgives sins? You can't forgive sins. So Jesus turned around and he says, Which is easier to say? Your sins be forgiven you? Or take up your bed and walk? That's a question. Which is easier to say? Not which is easier to do. Which is easier to say? It's easier to say your sins be forgiven you. Because you can't prove whether anything happened. You can't see a sin and you can't see when that sin is forgiven. So as far as just saying something, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say take up your bed and walk because if you say that and the man isn't healed, then it's obvious that it didn't work. So it's actually harder to say be healed than it is to say be forgiven. And then Jesus said, but so that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, then turned he to the sick of the palsy and said, rise, take up your bed and walk. In other words, he did that which was hardest to prove. If he can do the hardest, he can do that which is easier. If you can do the greater, you can do the less. You know, if I could jump from here all the way to the back of this auditorium, then I can guarantee you I could jump from here to the front seat. But if I can't jump from here to the front seat, you would be safe to place a bet that I couldn't jump from here to the back of the auditorium. If I can't do that which is least, I can't do that which is greatest. But if I can do that which is greatest, then I can do something less. And so the Lord said, be healed. And this man was instantly healed. So, taking Jesus' own example, 
Did you know that forgiving a person of their sins is really the greatest thing? It's not the, it's not the hardest to say, but it's actually the hardest to do because only God can forgive sins. And if you receive the forgiveness of sins when you hadn't fasted, you hadn't prayed, you hadn't studied the Word, you weren't living holy, you didn't deserve a thing, and you came and just threw yourself on the mercy of God. No, Father, please forgive me for Jesus' sake. And you receive the greatest miracle of salvation, then it ought to be relatively easy to get healed. But the reason that it's the opposite in most people's life is because when it came to salvation... You didn't trust yourself. You came singing the song, Just as I am, without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. And your faith was totally in a Savior. But now that you're saved, your faith is in how good you've been living. And God, I'm going to church and I'm doing everything. And now heal me because of look what I've done. If you were to have come forward and said, God, heal me because I'm living holier than I ever had, you wouldn't have ever gotten saved. And that's the reason you aren't being healed. And that's the reason you aren't having joy and aren't having peace is because you're trying to earn it instead of receiving it. In your life, mercy and truth haven't ever met. Righteousness and peace haven't kissed each other. You are still trying to obtain it on your own instead of getting it through Jesus. Boy, this is major what I'm saying. It's major. And the vast majority of the body of Christ doesn't understand this. They will either preach the holiness of God, you've got to be holy, you've got to do all of these things, or they'll preach that God is just a God of mercy and grace and it's like He can do anything He wants to. And they don't ever reconcile these two apparent opposites. Man, there are, there's a lot in the Word of God. Let me share one last passage of Scripture with you. I know I've been talking a long time, but look at this in Hebrews chapter 12. I know that somebody's been thinking of this verse. Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 14 it says, Follow peace with all men. And holiness without which no man can see the Lord. Boy, people will use this verse often and say, you've got to be holy. If you aren't holy, you can't see the Lord. And they will extrapolate from that much more than just seeing the Lord. You can't receive from the Lord. You can't have God move in your life. You can't have peace with God. You can't have a relationship with God. You've got to be holy, holy, holy. God is holy, so therefore you be holy. Look at this in context. Let me show you what this is really saying. Back up a few verses. He had just talked about the chastening of the Lord and how that no chastening seems pleasant. Man, it's a tough experience. And so because of all of this, he says in verse uh, 12, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. In other words, when a person is going through the chastening of the Lord, man, it can be discouraging. They need to be encouraged. I'm not going to teach on all of this, but the chastening of the Lord is not sickness and poverty and cancer and destruction and divorce. That's not the chastening of the Lord. That's wrong, wrong, wrong. But God can get on your case. 
I guarantee you the Lord has spoken to me sometimes and told me, I am not pleased with the way you're treating this person, with the way you responded. And I tell you, it just, it's not encouraging. It's not pleasant. The Word of God is given for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The Word of God, when God speaks to you, He can chasten you. And so when you're chastened, we need to encourage those who have done something wrong and that God has shown them and that they're in the process of growing through something. That's what He's talking about in verse 12. Lift up the, uh, the hands which hang down in the feeble knees, verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all man and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, and on and on. If you take this in its context, it's talking about your ministry to other people. Encourage people. Lift up the hands that hang down. And follow peace without wit and holiness. With If you don't have it, nobody's going to see the Lord. That's not talking about you seeing the Lord through you living holy. That's talking about you ministering to other people. If you aren't living a holy life, nobody's going to see the Lord in you. Nobody's going to be encouraged by you. Nobody's going to be drawn closer to the Lord. If you're out here living in sin and having all of these problems... This isn't talking about that you have to be holy in order, for, in order for God to see you or you to see God. That would be doing away with Jesus. You are holy through what Jesus did in your spirit, man. I'll be explaining that more this week. But this is talking about when you're ministering to other people, you've got to walk in peace. You've got to be holy. You've got to live a godly life. Otherwise, they aren't going to see God in you. If you're telling somebody that they can be delivered from alcoholism or drug addiction and yet you yourself are an alcoholic and a drug addict, they aren't going to see God in you. They aren't going to say, well, how how do you sit here and tell me all of this? You're in bondage yourself. If you're telling a person about the great liberty and how God has set you free and you're just so happy and yet you're mean as a snake and you're bitter and you're depressed and discouraged, nobody's going to see God in you. They aren't going to be encouraged by you. You got to live holy, not in order for God to love you because you receive right standing with God through Jesus and faith in what He did for you. But you've got to live holy so that your heart can be sensitive to God and also as a witness so that people can see God in you. They need to see that there is a supernatural power that has set you free from the depression and the fear. We were talking earlier about the finances. Man, you ought to be, you ought to be able to give a testimony that our... Our uh, investments have gone up 61% or whatever it is instead of when the world is losing 50 and 60% in the stock market and you're going up. That's a testimony that lets people see that there's something supernatural going on. You ought to have something that identifies you as being different. You ought to be able to tell the difference between you and a lost man. You're alive. They're dead. There ought to be a difference. I've been in churches before that were so dead that they had a guy die. They called 911 and they took out half the congregation before they found the dead person. Man, you ought to be able to tell that you're alive and they're dead. You ought to be able to say, man, I'm walking in hell. Here everybody's afraid of the swine flu. 
You ought to be walking in health while everybody else around you is sick. You ought to be well. You ought to be prosperous when the rest of the world is crying foul. When the rest of the world is fearful about what's going to happen, you ought to be praising God because, man, lift up your head. Your redemption is drawing nigh. We're coming into the end times. You, you ought to be standing out like a healed thumb in this world. That's, why, that's all that this is saying. If you aren't living holy, if you aren't living a life that is reflecting that you're alive and they're dead, how's anybody going to see God in you? How are they ever going to have any hope? How's anybody going to know something's different? And brothers and sisters, the number one thing that blocks us from manifesting this abundant life and living a victorious life is your own focus and obsession with your holiness instead of receiving relationship with God through Jesus' holiness and through faith in Him. You know, I'm going to share this in more detail. I won't explain it, but let me just say this because I know some people are thinking, so you're just preaching living in sin. No, I just read these verses. You need to live holy so that people can see the freeing power, the abundant life of God in you. I am not advocating sin. I am not encouraging you to live in sin. And I praise God that God called me to preach this message because you cannot accuse me of preaching the grace of God so that you can just go live in sin because I've lived holier accidentally than most of you have ever lived on purpose before. (laughs) You can't look at me and look at my life and say that this is just sloppy agape. (laughs) This is just Him encouraging people to live in sin. I live a holy life. I live a disciplined, separated life, but I am not doing it in order to be accepted with God. I do it because I have been accepted with God and I'm aware that the world is trying to blind that and I have to focus. It takes effort. I'm living it so that I can keep my heart sensitive to God, not God's heart sensitive to me. I'm doing it so that I can be a testimony to other people. So I am not encouraging sin. And this is one of the things that I get accused of. Often people will sit there and say, oh man, you just don't care if a person goes in sin. That's not true. You can't say that by looking at my life. You can't say that by looking at the people that have really received the message that I preach. I've had so many people say, man, I fell in love with God. One of the most common comments that I get is since I've been listening to this, it hasn't set them free to sin it set them free from sin. It set them free from the guilt and the penalty. And now that they understand that God loves them, they are living a freer life and a holier life accidentally than they ever have on purpose before. So if you're going to sit here and go out and say, well, Andrew Wama is just encouraging people to go live in sin, you're either a liar or you just did not listen to a thing I've said. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not, because it knew Him not. Verse 2 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Not going to be. We are now the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. 
Boy, there's a great message in that. If you could ever see him as he is. See, that's what I'm trying to teach on is to try and reconcile these things and let you understand that he's not this harsh God that demands your perfection. He he, uh, kept the law for you. He lived totally for you and he's offering relationship with him based not on what you do, but on what he did for you. When you see him like he really is, you'll be like him. And then in verse 3 it says, And every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. It didn't say that some people. This is a tendency among those. No, it says every man that has this hope in him, the hope of seeing him as he is, and now are they the sons of God. Every person who truly enters into relationship with God purifies himself, even as he is pure. Any person who would take what I'm saying and say, oh man, this is wonderful, I can go live in sin. Because God loves me and it's not based on my goodness and it's not performance based. You don't know Him. You hadn't been born again. If you were born again, your desire is to purify yourself. You may be doing a poor job of it because religion will take away the power. The gospel is the power of God. But if you truly have relationship with God, your desire is to live holy. And regardless of how well you're doing at living holy, your true desire is to live holy. So a person who would take what I'm saying and say, man, this is wonderful. Let's go live in sin so that grace may abound. God forbid. You ought to get born again. You don't truly know God. You're just religious. You're looking for an excuse so that you can go do what's really in your heart. If you're truly born again, God changes you at the heart level and you want to live for God. Now, you've got to know some things and that's the reason we're having this seminar and the rest of this week I'm going to be teaching some things that I guarantee you will set you free from sin, not free to sin. You've got to renew your mind. But your heart is instantly changed if you truly are born again. If you know God, your desire is to live for God. And so a person who would go out and use this as an excuse to go live in sin, you you aren't born again. This doesn't free you to sin, it frees you from sin. That's good news. And brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you tonight... I know that this is just kind of an introduction. Some of you have heard me teach along these lines. But you need to hear this over and over and over again. And I'm going to be getting into some things this weekend that I guarantee is going to rattle your cage. I believe that every one of us have had a tremendous amount of performance-based misinformation about God. And it needs to be renewed. And I'm going to be saying some things that I can guarantee you will go against what you've been taught. And some of you are thinking, well, how do you know that? You don't know what I've been taught. I'm just looking at the results that people get. You can tell what seed was planted by what fruit is growing. And most people do not have the abundant life. They don't have the joy and the peace and the power and the enjoyment that God purchased us. And so if they aren't getting that fruit, somewhere the root is bad. And I'm telling you, I believe that most of us need a major overhaul in the way that we understand and relate to God. So that's what we're talking about. 
And I believe that you're going to understand about how mercy and truth have meant, how righteousness and peace have kissed each other. How those things that are so opposite are now united all through their relationship with Jesus. And that's awesome. And I tell you, this will really, really help you in your relationship with the Lord. I've been speaking primarily to believers tonight, but if there's anybody here who's not born again, you know what, this would be a great opportunity for you to get born again. Maybe you've understood tonight. Maybe you thought, well, I could just never live good enough. I might as well not try. The good news is you don't have to. Jesus purchased salvation for you. It's a gift. And all you got to do is just come and receive this gift. And then when you receive it, He gives you a new heart. He changes your desires. And the things that seem like you could never let go of them, that they've got dominance over you, you'll see it just broken out of you because God changes you at the heart level and cleanses you from the inside out. All you have to do is receive this free gift of salvation. And then also, once you get born again, Jesus said not to go tell anybody, not to do anything until you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you know, we have a lot of people that watch me on television and because I don't scream and yell and spit and do things that typical Pentecostals do and say, glory to God, most people don't realize I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit and they don't realize that I speak in tongues. But you know what? Jesus said you need that. That's when you receive power. And there's some of you that have really had your heart changed, but you've never been empowered by God. And I'm telling you, the Christian life isn't just difficult, it's impossible to live. You need supernatural ability to turn the other cheek when somebody slaps you. You need supernatural ability to overcome cancer and and sickness and disease and poverty. You can't do it on your own. The Christian life was never meant to be you doing it for God. God is supposed to come empower you. And if you don't speak in tongues, you are missing the power of the Holy Spirit. I do believe it's possible to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit without speaking in tongues. I'm not speaking in tongues right now. I'm speaking in English. And I've got the Holy Spirit. So you don't have to be speaking in tongues to have the Holy Spirit. I can control it. The Bible says the spirits of the prophets are subject unto the prophets. I can speak in tongues when I want to and I can speak in English when I want to. I don't believe you have to speak in tongues. I believe you get to speak in tongues. It's a privilege. It's an honor. Somebody said, well, I don't know that I want that. It's a gift from God. And I'm telling you, it makes a huge difference. You know, our, our Jamie's sister and brother-in-law, we've known them, of course, the whole time we've been married for 37 years. And uh, they're wonderful people, been Baptist pastors. And we got along and there was good things happening. But you know what? They just received the baptism of the Holy Spirit last November. And they are changed people. Things that we've been... We've been trying to tell them things for 30-something years. And it's just like... And now they got it. They've got it. They are talking to us. We just saw them this last week and they are so excited and they're saying, this was here all along. I don't know how I missed it. I'm telling you, we have a very fresh example that when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and when you start speaking in tongues, it's just like turning a switch on the inside. 
You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You need this gift of speaking in tongues. Somebody said, well, they don't do that in my church. That's the reason I'm not in your church. But we do it here. I do it. It's my testimony that that made a huge difference. So if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which regardless of how you define that, if you don't speak in tongues, you ought to come and let us help you to receive that gift of speaking in tongues. It'll make all of the difference in your life. So is there anybody here who would say, I need either this baptism of the Holy Spirit and this gift of speaking in tongues, or I need to be born again tonight? Is there anybody here like that, that you'd raise your hand and say, that's me and I want you to pray for me? If that's you, I want you to...